Hey guys, it's Kobe Ben-Melech here. Um, it's been a pretty interesting time for the podcast. Uh, some really cool guests coming up, some very interesting guests, uh, including a former prime minister of Israel. Um, so watch out for that in the near future. Um, and I guess it's just a reminder to say that um, as things get cooler and cooler over here, um, really to subscribe to my podcast on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, whatever, um, and to share the episodes if you like them. Um, so for example, this next one, um, I've never spoken with a victim of a terrorist attack before. Um, and I didn't really know what to expect, but um, this one, you know, this conversation was, um, it was, it was very interesting, uh, I thought, and I think, you know, might be interesting for other people as well. So this is an opportunity again to say, please subscribe to wherever you listen to my stuff. And if you really like this episode, share it. Really, I would appreciate, um, I would appreciate the help in, in spreading the word. Um, you know, this stuff tends to snowball, right? So the more cool, interesting podcasts and conversations that I have, the more uh, my listeners spread the word, the more other cool and interesting people want to come on and talk to a guy who just wants to hear them out and uh, you know know what it's like to be wherever it is that person that's sitting across from me. So anyway, I hope you enjoy this conversation that I had with Rabbi Leo D. Cheers, guys. Bye. So anyway, I'm I'm uh, I'm writing a book for my kids. Mm -hmm. You know, two two years ago was that war. Uh, yeah, that war right in Gaza in mm -hmm. May May 11, 2021, right? Mm -hmm. Where there were the first the rockets into over Tel Aviv and then over Jerusalem. I guess they didn't hit hit here, right? One did. I think that was the the earlier war. There was one that came to Gush Etzion. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, that's when basically the entire country descended into almost essentially chaos, right? There were riots in Lod, there were riots in Akko, mm -hmm. like there was just, mm. I had never seen anything like that before. And that was after such a long period of relative peace, right? I mean, the last major operation was 2014. Mm -hmm. uh, so seven years without anything blowing up in this country is, is pretty good. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so that was the first time that I experienced um, that as a father, and you know it's it's one thing to bear you know the the rocket sirens and all that stuff as a single guy right or even as a married guy but with kids it's it's different because now it's like i'm this innocent little creature uh who's just brought into the world by essentially strangers right and by i don't know the the weirdness of reality and of, of our existence is just thr thrust into this situation. Um, it requires an explanation. It's like, what the hell is going on, right? And um, I, I couldn't explain it. Not not really, right? To, to the kids. Yeah. How do you explain the Israel-Palestine conflict to a child, a five-year-old child? Mm -hmm. um, it, it takes a lot of unpacking, right? For it to make any sense. Um, uh, really, I mean, to right. get to the root of this conflict, it just it takes hours, years. It's, you know, um, 
it's been uh, fueled by what I call anti-truths. Right. Um, so this is part of my war against um, CNN, that um, in reality, if you look at the Middle East, you'll see that Israel is the kindest, freest, most democratic country in the area by far. It's the only free, democratic, and uh, kind country in the area, and it's surrounded by 22 countries which have no freedom of speech, no freedom of religion, no freedom of anything. And, uh, and yet, you know, when you have organizations like CNN and other news organizations that uh, accuse Israel of being the cause of the conflict, yeah. uh, then that is what I call an anti-truth. It's not a lie. A lie is just sort of not correct. It is absolutely taking the truth and switching it on its head. Yeah. Because if you're surrounded by you know, fascist dictators, which we are, um, and people who have got no freedom uh, at all, basically slave regimes, where we have 200 million slaves surrounding us, um, and we're the only free island in, in the area, with two million Muslims who are the only free two million Muslims in the whole, uh, re in the whole region, um, and then we're being accused of being the evil one when they're clearly, <laughs> clearly the evil one. Um, you know, th so this misinformation campaign is what um, what actually sort of is is swaying people. Now, uh, you as a podcast uh, uh, organization uh, <laughs> don't have to one uh, guy yeah. <laughs> as a pod you as a podcast don't don't have to toe the line of of these uh, media uh, organizations. You could say yeah, you can have your own sort of yeah. truth. Uh, which might be the actual truth, um, but you know might also have less viewers than CNN. But um, well, that's the thing. So hmm. I realized in my so, look, the night when those rockets came over into Tel Aviv was nine o'clock at night. It was just finishing up dinner, and I had to take my two sons. I had two sons at the time. Now I have three. Um, I had to take them downstairs to the bomb shelter, and I had to do that several times because there were several. S uh, volleys, right? Mm -hmm. And by the last time, I'm, I'm skipping over most of the details, but by the last time, my son, who had just turned five, vomited mm -hmm. um, as he came upstairs. And he was crying. He says, I just want to go to sleep. Um, and the next day, he asked me, well, what, what were all those sirens? What were all those bombs? And then I started to try to explain, you know, what, well, what's Israel? What's Palestine? Okay, then I have to explain what, what a country is, or what a border is, and whether it was just this jumbled mess. Right. And I realized um, I just don't know what the hell's going on here. So, wh what's interesting is that actually the experts don't R know anything. Right. And right. One, one of the things that I found, because in my situation, I've been able to open every door. So that's uh, you know the strange result of w what happened. What does that mean? Open every door. Means that I can call anyone and they will meet with me, um, and that's why uh, people saw me in the Knesset many times over the last few weeks and speaking to senior rabbis and uh, people in all sorts of uh, positions in society, um, and people generally will pick up the phone to me at this point. Yeah, and um, I've learned a lot about Israeli society and I've seen that you know, there's very little strategy that goes in from a high level uh, in terms of making decisions, that a lot of it's done basically on momentum, that um, whatever has been will be somebody said to me, security is stability, stability is security, which if you uh, uh, un unpack that basically means the less we do the better because you know everything is uh, as it is, is as good as it's going to be. Okay. And and that really is is a statement that sums up the uh, Israeli sort of hierarchy 
Uh, and, but, and in the rabbinate as well, that, uh, you know, that uh, we don't want to rock the boat. Things are going pretty well here. The economy is pretty good. Security is pretty good. Everything's pretty good. Um, and yet, you know, if, if you're like me and you've been affected very deeply and 44% of your family has been wiped out by a terror attack, uh, then you don't feel that stability is secure, there's security is stability, and you feel that actually there needs to be change. Right. And then you go around and try and see if there are any partners for change, and you find that there are, but they're amongst like the millions of people and not amongst the tens of thousands of leaders uh, or uh, of, 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 any, of, of either regime. Right. So um, then you start looking at different ways to uh, achieve change, and... Uh, that's been a real challenge, but I actually was a change management uh, expert in my in my first well expert. I was a, a uh, I was a management consultant in my first job. Okay. So when I came out of university at Cambridge at the age of 22, um, I joined a consulting firm for three years in 1994 to 97, and um, I was doing turnarounds because the economy in 1990 uh, was at um, a low. 1989 was mm -hmm. a crash, mm -hmm. and things started picking up in the early 90s. By 94, they realized we need to really grow the economy now, and they had no people left because they'd fired everybody, so they brought in management consulting firms who didn't have any people either, so they recruit, recruited people like myself from uh, Oxford and Cambridge, and they threw us straight into boardrooms, and we were turning around you know, FTSE 100 blue-chip uh, com companies at the age of 22 with no experience whatsoever. And it was great because uh, I enjoyed it. I mean, I, w w how successful we were is another question. But that, that's what I wanted to ask. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I think we, w we were quite successful actually because again, a lot of uh, change is logical. Um, it's just emotionally difficult. So, right. so there are techniques about how to work people through the emotions of it. Right. But you know, usually the ideas also come when you're in a company. The ideas come from the bottom. So one of, one of the techniques <laughs> we had in uh, you know, British Gas, uh, which like well, is one of the biggest companies in, in the country, yep. providing gas to yep. every, every household in England. In the world, even. Uh, in the world. Uh, so we went around the workforce, uh, thousands of people in the workforce. We did something called a brown paper exercise, which I don't know if they still do it today, but they did it 30 years ago, um, where you'd literally take out a roll of brown paper, stick it on the wall of the office, and you'd have uh, post-it notes, which had just been invented, by the way, in those days. Okay. And got people to basically, and, and you drew out the process that took place in the uh, complaints department of British Gas. Okay. And then you'd get a load of people who were just doing it, you know, t on telephone people, you know, saying, put a red note where there's a problem and a green note where it's working well. And then what you'd find is that there were certain parts of the process which were working really well, and there were like clumps of green. And then there were clumps of red. And then you'd say, well, okay, this needs to be re-engineered. And so then you would basically write a paper, you know, you'd sort of work out speaking to them what the problem was. Yeah. Well, you know, the guy never turns up on a Tuesday morning and all the complaints have to be on a Tuesday morning and da 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 da, -da whatever. So the solution is make sure the guy's there on Tuesday morning. Right. It, was, it, was, it really wasn't rocket science. Right. And then you take that to the board of directors and say, look, you know, we can solve a big problem, a bottleneck in your complaints department by bringing in somebody for like, you know, $1,000 a, a week. Uh, on a Tuesday morning, right. and that would solve a million-dollar problem in the on the balance sheet or the, on the profit and loss. So you know. So uh, anyway, what what I realized was, <coughs> you don't have to be a genius to solve the problem, but you do have to understand how to work with people. Okay, so a, a few things that cropped up in my mind as you said that. The first is, I've had similar thinking about what I want to do. So I, part of this podcast is born of a frustration of the way media is done in general, mm -hmm. right? 
whereas you have people present themselves as authorities on a subject matter where they're actually really not. Mm-hmm. The journalist comes in there without any experience about how to run a country, a city, a business, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Much like a consultant, sorry to... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, they sometimes they know what's going on, but most of the time they don't because it's just they haven't lived through what it is to, to be those things. Mm-hmm. So it's very easy to criticize, and that's all all good and well, but to actually understand what's how these things work is something else entirely and and so then you get this sort of distorted view of the world right and then of course add on top of that all the you know the economic issues right mm-hmm. that uh the news industry is going on that are it's happening to the news industry but the fact that the people whose job it is the industry whose job it is to explain how the world works is is crumbling it's collapsing mm-hmm. um this is a problem, and you can tell actually that the, the, the polls even show this. Just, I mean, certainly in the U.S., but also in this country, that trust in the media is not is, is very low. Right. right. In, um, in fact, trust in leadership is very low as well in terms of prime ministers. And, that's all, that's. And, I think that's probably and, and, always and, been the case. Opposition right? leaders as well. Interesting for me that I have a personality disorder, which was caused by being bullied at school uh, for two years when I was twelve, thirteen. My mother at the time was not in a state that she could help me. Um, whatever she, you know, she she had her own problems at the time. And um, when at the first funeral uh, for Maya and for Rina, I was crying. My mother said to me, "Leo, this is the second time I've seen you cry in your life." I said, "When was the first time?" She said, "That time you came back from school crying uh, when they threatened to throw you down the stairwell." So I said, well, uh, wh- Mom, I was bullied for two years. I never cried before that. So she never noticed that I was upset for two years before that. Wow. Uh, until they threatened to kill me in the class. And then I was the youngest person in the class by a year. I was put forward a year. So then I was shorter than everybody. Right. So that I had that. And I was also top of the class, which made it not, oh, a, very, no. not a very good combination. <laughs> you painted a hell of a target uh, on your So brain. I really was the target. <laughs> and I was Jewish. And there was only two <laughs> Jews in, in my class because there was a, a quota in this Christian school of how many Jews you were allowed to have. This is uh, a joke. No, 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 not, not to be a victim blaming, but you kind of deserve it, man. Yeah, yeah, and you're younger <laughs> and you're shorter and you're smarter right. than everyone else. Um, so what, what I found was two years I, I had to cope with this particular problem of bullying. Yeah. And the teachers were no use. And uh, so I, I learned to really to, to, to just ignore authority. And that huh. became a part of my personality, which Lucy sometimes found quite sort of uh, appalling. But, you know, if there was a senior rabbi or a senior politician or senior anyone and everyone's giving them tremendous respect, right. I'd be the one calling them, you know, uh, names <laughs> that were probably not appropriate, uh, <laughs> at least privately. Right. And uh, she said, well, can't you give them a bit of respect? And this guy's got like 30 years, 40 years experience. I, and I said, well, it, it just wasn't me. So, right. uh, so that's part of – and actually now I'm going around meeting these people and um, I've been pretty, uh, f- uh, pretty honest with them. I mean – because you talk about the problem with the media. So uh, I think the media and the politics t- together form a quite dangerous package. Yes. So if you go around the Knesset, it's very fascinating. The um, ministers, at least, uh, maybe the other pol- the, um, regular politicians as well, have a television in their, um, in their rooms. Right. So you're sitting there. They've got the TV playing uh, what the news is saying. And the outside, uh, the prime minister's office, you might have been there. You'll see they've got Channel 12, 11, 13, 14, all the channels. With, with like two or three people, anchors, whatever, sitting there yeah. waiting for passing politicians to give an opinion. So I actually saw one of the ministers come into his office, look at uh, the, the news, and then pop out again to make another statement and then come back in again to see how it looks. It's theater. The it's theater. And, and it's basically 
it's basically like a feedback loop. And the way I yeah. explain it, it's a bit like putting this microphone next to the speaker, right? And what you find is that uh, there'll be this like loud boom. And that's what's happening in, in politics and the media is that the politicians right. are saying something, the media are replaying it, they're listening to it. Right. And it's going around this huge circle and it's right. and so unproductive. Right. Uh, I, w I went into one minister's office because I, I mentioned to you earlier that um, I wanted to close the Chachem, uh, which is the, the entrance into the Muslim quarter for the Jerusalem Day Parade. And the reason I wanted to do that was because every year there's what's called a Chil Hashem, like desecration of God's name, because you get a bunch of young kids who dance around thinking it's funny to shout out death to the Palestinians um, outside uh, the houses there, yep. which is, of course, where the world media right. uh, is waiting for them as a trap. Right. And it goes out to about a half a billion people every Jerusalem day. Right. That look, uh, and, and, the, and the way they cut it, as you know, is you know, they have that, and then they have the, the Hamas people sing right. death to Jews. Right. They say, well, they want the death of the Palestinians. They want death to Jews. The situation is worse here than it's ever been. Yeah. And look at the conflict in the Middle East. Can I, can I just take a time out for a second, just yeah. so, I, cl just so yeah. I know who exactly who I'm talking to? So you live in a settlement. You're mm. a religious Jew. Do you do you like it that kids say death to Arabs? No, uh, no. Okay. I, I think right. I, I think it's the greatest insult to to the decent Arab uh, uh, population. So All right. um, I was what I was trying my best the week before uh, yeah. the Jewish Day Parade to get the gate closed, and I was speaking to every politician, every senior politician, and every um, senior rabbi. Who had any influence to do it, and they all could have individually probably had uh, influenced it. Yeah, and they all individually agreed with me that it was going to be a terrible, you know, chil uh, a desecration of God's name. Yeah, in front of the whole world, and none of them wanted to take it on their particular reputation because they thought that they might look like they were left wing. So <laughs> when I went into a very senior minister, who um, everyone would say is probably the most right wing minister in the government, I won't mention his name. Um, I sat in his office, and by the way, he had the TV playing behind me. So as I was talking to him, he's looking at me, and I said to him, I said, you know, well, Jaime, whatever his name was, I said, uh, <laughs> it's very rude that you've got the TV on behind me. I said, my father does that to me, and it really annoys me. So I grabbed the TV control, I turned it off, and I said, you'll have to speak to me for 10 minutes without it. He said, what, what, what if I miss something? It was like the uh, plenum or something. They were they're voting in the, uh, in the Knesset, and there was some Haredi guy talking some rubbish about the budget. I said, look, he's talking rubbish. It's not relevant to you. I said, if something important happens, your, your secretary will come and tell you. Right. He said, okay, fine. So he listened to me. I said to him, I said, Jaime, um, we won't mention his name. I said, Jaime, I said, you're the only person who can close this gate. Did you realize that? I said, because you, you can he actually the do it. Right. You have the authority to do it. And nobody could say that you are left wing because you are the most right wing person in the government. And he looked at me. He said, you know what? They will tell me that I'm left wing. So I don't know who is going to tell him that he's left-wing and who's going to tell Bibi he's left-wing and who's going to tell the rabbis they're left-wing. Right. They're worried about some group of about five teenagers on a hill in some sort of settlement in a caravan yeah. uh, who apparently are controlling the whole uh, right. you know, th this idea that they won't close um, the, the gate to the, the Muslim quarter because they'll be accused of being uh, left-wing. It's a circus. And, and, and it's, it's just, the whole thing is, like a, is, is, is ridiculous. Anyway, of course what happened was they kept the, the gates open, and these boys danced around, and it became the story. The uh, uh, appendix to the story, though, is, you might like. So um, last week, I had uh, the head of uh, from the Ministry of uh, Education came to the house. Uh, he's in charge of 450 uh, yeshivas and opanot, so religious high schools in okay. Israel, all yep. of them. right? And um, he gave me a very lovely book of 40 projects that were set off in these different high schools uh, in memory of Lucy Meyer and Rena. So that was beautiful. And I said, thank you very much. I mean, I did a little film saying that if in two months' time there's been some progress, I'm happy to come back. They can make a little film. 
I will speak to them all, and it was it was very nice. Um, and then before he left, uh, it was a 10-minute meeting. Before he left, I played him this video of these boys dancing in the uh, street. In the, in the I said, there were 16-year-old boys with kippot. I said, by the way, I said, you're 450 schools. I said, these boys, would they, be, uh, would they go to one of those schools? He said, yeah, for sure. I said, well, I'm asking you then. You identify who these boys are. You summon them in front of the chief rabbi or equivalent. You get him to give them complete uh, telling off. Uh, a one-hour lesson about what it means to desecrate God's name in public in front of non-Jews, like they, like they did. And then you give them a project of one day cleaning up the Arab culture in, the, in, in Jerusalem, oh, wow. uh, or equivalent project, and all of it's caught on film. All of it is then sent to all the schools and maybe to the uh, national and international media. He said, I will do it. He so will or will he not? Said, he said, I will do it. Okay. So uh, I checked up on Friday he, and I checked out how's it going. And he said, it's in progress. I don't, I don't know whether it will happen, how it will happen, or if, if it will happen, but right. I certainly you know, am fascinated to see that it should happen. Wow. I think there'll be a lot of support from most of the right-wing people who are not the five guys in the caravan, the imaginary five people, by the way, in the, in the caravan, who right. are so right-wing that they would even call the most right-wing politician left-wing. <laughs> uh, so you have those five imaginary people that don't really exist. Right, uh, right, I think right. everybody basically would agree that that is So it. Okay, so this, this, this is... This is perfect. So just to come back to the point about, you know, this, this is the kind of parallel that I have with you is that I thought if you can, so a bad informational diet, which is what we have at the moment, leads to polarization, right? We don't, right. we break down in trust and, you know, we have these social, sorry, these judicial, the, the protests over the judicial reforms and half the country thinks the other half is trying to essentially turn this country in, into some sort of authoritarian regime, right? The seculars don't trust the religious, and the religious think, "Ah, oh, you're just you're playing a game for your own power." Right? right. This is bad. This is a bad state of affairs. Uh, but if you have a, a a better informational diet, a, a a media system that promotes nuance and data, essentially, yeah. then well, well, what is the ex like if if the if the if the extreme on the bad end of it is polarization, and then maybe even a civil war, well, what does the other side right. take you right now? Obviously, if you, you can finish the sentence and you think, well, hmm, interesting, maybe we can have a, a, a truly peaceful society in that sense. But this is ties back into what you were saying about stability, security, security, stability. It's like, it's a very dangerous game to play, right? And I was talking about this with my wife. She's like, that's super naive. Uh, just, we have, we have a fundamental educational problem, which is Arabs, or many Arabs, are fed lies essentially about what's going on in our minds and, and vice versa well. right you no, felt lies as well by the way and there's plenty versa, of sure. uh you know left-wing let's say i mean mostly left-wing jews in america and even in this country who believe some of those lies right so much so that um i was talking about uh, a potential uh peace solution which I'm, I'm working on actually by the way it's cool. a more interesting story but um with with a senior advisor to the government and he said to me, um, you know, that uh, we have to, uh, you know, we, we, we have to be careful what we say because you know, we are occupying these Arabs. Uh, we're not occupying these Arabs, actually. Um, you know, so, so some of these, these ideas, CNN and ideas, have actually come into the heads of senior right-wing advisors. They actually start to believe it, and they believe the narrative. And then even their policies are, are directed by these, these uh, anti-truths. Um, why, why do you think there's no occupation? Okay, so I think a couple of answers. Now, first of all, um, if you look at um, 
if you look at, as we said, the free society in the Middle East is only Israel. So Palestinian uh, Authority, uh, so Israel has a score of 77 on the, on the Freedom House score, mm -hmm. uh, which is the sta international standard for measuring freedom, which is uh, lower than American Britain, but it's pretty good. It's free. Um, if you look at Palestinians, they have about 23, and Gaza has 11, uh, which means they're not free, which means that they're basically regimes, fascist yep. regimes, where they're run by dictators and militias and terrorists. And we know that's a fact. So, you know, so we're in a situation where um, we're surrounded by mostly good Arabs who are run by terrorists, a terrorist state, effectively. Um, and so we, therefore, need to protect ourselves from the terrorist state. Okay? And sadly, sometimes good Arabs get caught in the crossfire, like I think a kid did last week. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, basically, you know, we're, we're doing the best we can, and we're giving them more and more work, paying them higher and higher salaries. Um, I've got a lot of... Uh, Palestinian friends who come in. This garden, as you see, has been kept very well by my Palestinian gardener, who I pay more than I would pay an Israeli gardener because he's a great guy. My house was built by Palestinians, and the, uh, every time I need any job done, I bring them in, um, and I pay them a very good day salary uh, for an Israeli. Um, and that's what's happening, and that's reality. So, you know, we're treating them well, but the security situation is such that we can't trust them because we can't trust their leaders, who are basically a bunch of uh, terrorists. Um, I mean, that there's a, there was a guy called Ari Fold. I don't know if yeah, you remember yeah, sure. Ari. So he was from Efrat, and he went to my shul, uh, and he was murdered four years ago at our local shopping center, which uh, is Rami Levy, which happens to be an area C. He was stabbed in the back right. by um, a young Arab guy. I remember watching uh, that online. Right. And now Actually I, watching I was, a guy yeah, get stabbed today. I, was, I wasn't so close to Ari at the time, uh, but um, I started looking at some of his videos. And one of his videos... Um, he is standing at the, at the Western Wall, the Kotel, and he shows the bottom uh, bricks, and he says those bottom bricks were put there by Herod, right? Uh, when he built the Second Temple, he rebuilt the Second Temple about uh, 100 years before the Common Era, whenever it was, whatever the date was. He says the middle uh, bricks, says, those were added to by the Crusaders or the Christians, whatever, you know, a, a thousand years later. He said, you see the mosque on top, the Al-Aqsa Mosque? He said that was built by the Ottomans 500 years ago. So he says, who is occupying who? He said, in other words, mm. if, if, if we are occupying them, then we would have our bit on top of them. But actually, if they're occupying us, they would have their, their temple on top of ours, our, our, our bricks. So the, if you, and he does the same in he Hebron. He goes to the Cave of the Patriarchs. He goes to, <laughs> to uh, the Cave of the Patriarchs, and he shows he says, the bottom bricks there. You can see them very clearly. They were, they were the Jewish uh, yeah. building. So the middle one's a crusade. Again, the, there's a mosque on top. Um, so, so who's occupying who? So I, again, that narrative is not very popular, and it's you know it, it's it's against uh, it, it's the uh, it's against the anti-truth that's being spread by the world media. But if you think about it logically, it's quite obvious you know who who has the bottom bricks and who's got the top bricks. So the the only I, I mean there would be several pushbacks, but I guess one is I think Mika Goodman puts this really nicely is that. Um, there was never a Palestinian state to occupy to begin with, right? Because it was Transjordan right, before right. that, and then, of course, the British mandate. Yet, what Palestinian people, the conditions that they live under, resembles very much a military occupation. I mean, there is a military government. I mean, it's all controlled by the military here. Mm -hmm. So, it is and it isn't. Right. Um, but and th it's, it's interesting. Politically, I mean, uh, historically, that uh, if you go to Kfar Etzion, which I recommend everyone goes to Kfar Etzion, there's a sound light show about uh, the War of Independence, 1948, 
and uh, there were about uh, Lamed, Lamed, I think 36 uh, martyrs, Jewish martyrs who died defending the south entrance to Jerusalem yeah. during the War of Independence. The Ben-Gurion said it was because of them that we actually won the War of Independence. Mm. And this is dedicated to them, the story of them. It's absolutely beautifully done and really fascinating. But what you find is that actually in 1948, this whole area, Gush Etzion, where I live, was, a Jew was full of Jewish settlements and, and kibbutzim. Right, And then what happened in 1948, the Jordanians came and they took the land from us and occupied it for 19 years. And then in 1967, we reoccupied it, mm -hmm. uh, at which point there were some Arab, you know, a few Arab uh, towns in the area, not so many actually, funnily enough, in, in this particular area. And you know, they're, they're, they're genuinely nice people, mostly, the, the Arabs that you meet in this area, and they work in a frat all the time. You see them all around. Um, but... Um, you know, they, they re, we, we reoccupied what we had in 1948. So actually, you know, again, the story is more complex than sure, people sure, make sure, out. Sure, 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 sure. It's it's just anyway. The the do you ever wonder? Do you ever fear that you're being naive or suckered by the moment to think that y you know you've been handed this horrible tragedy by fate? And it's catapulted you into this insane position in the world, in the world, really. And yeah, do you ever fear the consequences of trying to make something beautiful and, and good out of this? Mm, I don't. I don't fear the consequences at all. That I think I'm I probably feared more than I fear because I'm meeting with all these people who are very senior and experienced and knowledgeable, and have 30, 40 years of reputation behind them. Uh, rabbis and leaders and, and so forth and expert, academic experts, as you mentioned. Um, and so for them to make a decision which is against the grain is a big risk for their reputation because if it's wrong, then, you know, they could be, you know, they could lose a lot of points uh, in terms of their sort of brand value. Mm -hmm. um, my brand value has been around for eight weeks at this point <laughs> and I have very little to lose. I was a maths teacher earning 2,000 shekels uh, a month. Uh, in training, and you know, we could have earned up to six, eight thousand maybe next year if I'd have taken right. on a few more classes, <laughs> um, which is like two thousand dollars a month. Right, right, no, yeah. not exactly, whatever. And uh, I, um, you know, frankly, if if I get catapulted out of this position, as you put it, uh, I will go back probably to being a math teacher, earning uh, you know uh, two thousand dollars a month, and and be very happy doing that as well. So, I'm I'm a great risk and a fear and a threat to all these people because yeah. I I have this ability to open doors and I don't have the fear that they have of losing a reputation because my reputation has been eight weeks and their reputation has been 30, 40 years. So that puts me in an interesting position um, s to the extent that um, I'm de I've developed a, a peace plan uh, with um, an Arab friend who is uh, um, a, an imam in Haifa and has a connection to a million uh, Gazan and Palestinians through his Facebook and his... One million? One million through his Facebook and his, uh, his social media. And he's been spreading stories about me with Arabic subtitles and, and interviews with me, basically, like we're doing now, where I'm talking about the fact that I support the Palestinian people and I hate their leadership and I hate the terror. And he loves that story. And um, so we agree on that. Um, he went on Ma Makan, which I think is the um, Arab-Israeli TV station, okay. speaking to two million Muslim uh, Israelis. Whoa. And uh, he said uh, on Makan that any Arab family that doesn't uh, is not appalled by what happened to my family uh, is bringing up their kids to be murderers. So, so he's a friend. Whoa. He's a friend of, of Israel. He's a friend of us. You know, he's, he's one of, and, and he's outspoken. 
And uh, anyway, I uh, was working. And he's a, a Muslim. Uh, he's a Muslim. He's, a, he's, he's an imam. And I went to his mosque um, uh, two or three weeks ago. Um, and Yehuda and I were actually were together at that time. We had a BBC crew with us. Who is Yehuda? Time. Sorry. Uh, Yehuda's my son. Okay. Okay. Uh, we just davened uh, Mincha in a local shul. Uh, and uh, then we came over to, to his mosque, and they were just about to daven what I call uh, Ni'ilad, so fourth service, because they have five yeah. services. They're fourth service of the day. So they invited us into the mosque. First of all, the, the, the mosque in Haifa, it's the Ahmadi Mosque in Haifa, is the most beautiful building I've ever been to. And I, really? said, I said to him, I said, uh, Sharif, he likes to call it Sharif, yeah. I said, if I ever was given $100 million to build a shul, I would just send the architects into your <laughs> into, into here. I would say, do exactly what. Honestly, I mean, it, really? it's beautiful. So he invited us into the actual mosque, and the two of us sat in plastic chairs while they had the, the 50 of them on the ground going up, Allah and he was uh, calling out the prayers. And then at the end of that, he called, he said, okay, in Hebrew, he said, Rabbi D, I'd like you to give a, a Tavat Torah to um, a sermon to right. my people. Right. So I spoke for 10 minutes in Hebrew to them. And afterwards, uh, telling him them how wonderful their leader was, he's a man of peace and truth and whatever. Yeah, and whatever. Yeah, yeah. And uh, afterwards, they came up one by one, shook me by the hand, and said how sorry they are for my... Uh, for wow. my These were people from Ramallah, from Gaza, from uh, Jordan, from wow. all, over, all over the Arab world who happened to be uh, in, in his... just coming for ra random service on a Thursday night, where, whatever it was. Wow. Um, so he's an incredible man. And uh, anyway, I came up with this plan, which basically is a very good plan for religious Jews, settlers, you know. And, and I, I said to him, I said, um, Sharif, I said, this is my plan for peace. What, what do you think of it? And he listened to the whole plan. He said, you know what, Leo? He said, that is exactly what the Palestinian and the Gaza people have been dreaming about for 50 years. So I'm thinking, how could it be that there's something which appeals to me as a, you know, a settler, as a right-wing religious Jew, you know, who cares about you know, all the things that we care about. And it's exactly what the Palestinian people want as well because it gives them certain freedoms which they don't have at the moment. Um, and, it, and it's like a win-win. So um, anyway, so we're working on that plan. Please God, we'll plan to release it in uh, the beginning of July. And we need to, to tick a few boxes between now and then and to discuss it with various experts. Um, but once we have, then... Uh, Can you share what's, what's in it? Um, what are the broad... Let's put, I'll, I'll tell you what it's not, right? I'll tell you the three plans that are on the table at the moment and why they don't work. And, then, and I'm sure your viewers can work out the fourth plan for themselves. Uh, it's not rocket science. But the first plan is the one-state solution. It doesn't work for us because you'd have to bring in five million extra uh, Muslim Arabs, um, and that would change the whole balance of power. It wouldn't work for them either. Okay, well, but probably wouldn't work for them. Uh, the two-state solution doesn't work for them. Because what we call a state, which means you know a, a circle around what they currently have, and no border with Jordan, no border with Syria, no border with Lebanon, no air force, no army, no nothing, but that's not really a state, right? If we're honest, it's not a state. So from them, you know, what we call a state, some of they call states, that there is no two-state solution because there's no such thing as a, as, as a state that doesn't have all those all those. Uh, uh, Costa Rica doesn't have an army. Okay, but I'm saying, I'm <laughs> saying, I know it, it doesn't tick the box for uh, right. Arabs require dig dignity, according to Sharif. Okay, one of the big things for Arabs is dignity, and and having a state which doesn't have you know any any access to the sea or. Um, <laughs> I don't suppose we can tell them to quiet. <laughs> um, we could ask. You want to be? Uh, yeah. Um, okay. You so are a powerful man. So, 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 we're talking, <laughs> so we're talking about the, the, the two-state solution, in my opinion, and in his opinion, it's not, it's not a solution for the Arabs because 
it creates a state which we might define as a state, but nobody else would define as a state because it doesn't have the powers of a state, a decision-maker of a state. It's completely yeah. engulfed in, in Israel. It's just basically a sort of, you know, uh, uh, description. So then there's a third solution, which apparently uh, Sharif told me about, that the Palestinians had pretty much agreed to, which is uh, a federal solution, which is like a state solution. Um, I didn't realize that it was on the table. But what you do is you make you know, each city in Israel like a state, so Tel Aviv and Jerusalem and Ramallah okay. and uh, Beth Bethlehem. Um, and then you give a certain point in the Senate. And you'd have, you know, so for Ramallah, well apparently what they'd agreed or what they think they could agree with the Palestinian Authority at this point is that Ramallah has 200,000 people, let's say, would have five points, five votes in the Senate. And Modiin, which might have 200,000 people, might have uh, 10 votes, right? Yes. And that way you'd ensure the Jewish nature of the state. So you basically fix the votes, uh, which they, it happens in America to a certain extent that some states have more points than others. But the problem is with that is that I think the uh, European Union and the US and the, and the non-Jewish people around the world would call it apartheid because effectively you're saying that one Jewish vote is worth two uh, mm. Arab votes. That's mm -hmm. apartheid. So it doesn't actually create a solution. Right. It creates another question. So those are the three solutions that are apparently on the table. Yeah. And we've come up with a fourth one, which actually solves, ticks all the boxes, both for the Jews, for the Palestinians, and for the European Union and the Americans. So, uh, yeah, interesting. Because, you know, the most hum humane solution would be something like everyone stays exactly where they are and there's some switch in their mind, some, some concept is redefined. Okay, so, so sovereignty. So I, I don't know. So, so, so that's effectively what we what, what, what we're doing. Right. We're doing it in a, in, a, in a standard way that's accepted elsewhere in the world, and therefore cannot be described in any way as apartheid. It actually gives people freedom of movement, yeah. freedom of uh, speech, freedom, a uh, complete freedom. Um, but it's uh, yeah. So you have to wait and see what the plan it's is. It's also so. it's also interesting that two religious guys are the ones dreaming this up. Right, it's interesting. So again, again, bypassing the the regular mechanisms because um, the politicians are incentivized to keep the status quo, and as are the uh, the media, because you know there's a huge business here. I and mean, when CNN interviewed me and said, Rabbi D, this year was one of the worst years for uh, terror in Israel, uh, which was a complete lie. It was an anti-truth because actually it was one of the better years for terror in Israel. However, sadly, it affected me. So for me, it was the worst year ever in uh, my life. But uh, as far as Israel is concerned, the numbers, you know, statistically were very low. Um, but, you know, what CNN and, what and other organizations want to try and pretend is that there is this conflict, which really isn't a conflict because, really, if you think about the number of people involved in this conflict, it's a very small number of people. It just happens to be that right. every time there's, like, a little scuffle, yeah. uh, the world media happens to be on top of it, you know, right. and, and if that scuffle had happened in London or in New York, nobody would even notice it. Right. Um, it wouldn't get be newsworthy. So there's, there's a huge business here in media and in politics of keeping this thing going as it is uh, and pretending that it's much worse than it really is. Yeah. Um, and in the meantime, you know, the people here have got a bit fed up with it. The people, my, my friends, religious Jews in the frat, we're fed up with it. And the Palestinian friends over there, they're fed up with it. And, you know, together the people actually want an end to this and they want to actually have freedom and, and rights and, and be able to drive up to holiday in the, the, the Canaret. Uh, the Sea of Galilee without getting shot by uh, three out of two uh, right. you know, barbarians. Um, so, you know, we, we, we're fed up with it. The leaders are happy because, you know, they've got a good job and they've got good income and they've got stability and security. 
but uh, <laughs> but but actually, the people are a bit fed up with it because you know, apparently security and stability is not enough for you know the Palestinians. It's not enough for the Jews. It's 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 incredible, actually, just how most of us just want to get on with it, yeah. right, and not be not have to constantly have to have this thing weighing on our necks, you know. Right. right. Um, it's partly why I'm writing this book for my kids. So anyway, the, the, if I go back to what, how we started, right, it's um, the only reason I'm here in this country is because I'm, I'm a Jew. Mm-hmm. It's the only explanation, right? And then what the hell is that? You know, what does it mean to be a Jew? And right. I didn't, I didn't have an answer. I, you know, I could, I could, I could explain to you some of the customs and the rituals that we all do, but why? What? What? So, so I, I have a book on this. Actually, I don't know if you wanted me to promote it, but uh, do it's, it. called, it's called "Transforming the World." Okay. Uh, the Jewish, uh, uh, the Jewish impact on modernity, and it's available on Amazon. I wrote it about eleven years ago, and it was published seven years ago, and it's my whole outlook on on life and Judaism, and and basically what I do is I take the whole of Judaism and I put it into you know, sort of boil it down to what it really is. Uh, and the reason I wrote it was because I had uh, bar mitzvah boys. I was a, ra- uh, a community rabbi yeah. in uh, London, in a community where about one percent of the people actually kept uh, Shabbat and kept kosher, okay. and ninety-nine percent of the people were were not so uh, observant in those particular uh, mitzvot. Um, I d- wouldn't say they weren't religious because some of these guys w- and girls were so strong and chesed and kindness and doing wonderful things that you couldn't describe them as not religious. They were religious in different ways, yeah. and a lot of them made aliyah. Um, but I wrote this book because a lot of the we had a lot of bar mitzvahs during that three years that we were in that community, yeah. and I I said I'm going to learn with every bar mitzvah boy twice, one to one, and this could be his last Jewish learning in his life because after his bar mitzvah he's not going to come back to, sh- to synagogue, right? And he may not marry a Jewish woman, uh, you know, uh, m- more likely would not based on statistics from that community, um, and therefore this is his last opportunity to learn anything Jewish. So I thought to myself, what could I l- teach them? And I thought, there's only one thing. Why be Jewish? So I, I broke it up into two parts. Number one, what's in it for me, Jaime Cohen, to be Jewish in my life? Why does it m- make me happy? Which, uh, that was the first half. And the second part was, um, why does the world need Jews? In other words, what do Jews do in the world? That right. changes the world. Right. And I boil it down to one idea, which is basically shalom, that, uh, which is not peace, by the way. Um, but shalom is, you know, it, uh, you can understand there's peace for, the, for this purpose. Um, it gives you inner inner peace, right? That's the, the happiness aspect of it, and, and show how a lot of the different uh, things we do as Jews actually do make you happier. Um, and uh, in terms of what impact the Jews have in the world, so our job is to make peace in the world. And actually, we have all the tools to do it. That's why you know it was the first thing that came to my mind when I thought I could open every door was why not start at the top. <laughs> so <laughs> that's you why know, I, I can, yeah, if, that, if that fails, I can go and speak yeah. and do, do dinner dates. Have you met with the prime minister? I met with I met with all the ministers and the prime minister and uh, yeah and all the coalition and all the uh, opposition. Wow! Uh, and I started off talking to them about the reform. I figured that um, <laughs> in terms of my yeah, I met with all the leaders of the reform arguments uh, in the Knesset. That was my first group of meetings, um, and we discussed a, posi- a, a possible solution to it, which came which Alan Dershowitz came up with basically. Okay. Um, and it, I, I said to them, look, you know, I said, you know, you're not an expert on judicial reform. I'm not an ex- a ju- expert on judicial reform, but I tell you, Alan Dershowitz has got, I think, 60 years experience sure. in judicial reform. And this is what yeah. he said. And by the way, he's against judicial reform here. Right, right. Um, but at the same time, he is intelligent enough to present it in a way that actually 
he shows there is a solution that both sides can accept. Hmm. So I just talked him through it and said, look, you know, why don't you adopt this amazing suggestion of uh, Alan Dershowitz? I, I had a little tweak to it, uh, which only I could add uh, in my situation. But hmm. uh, basically, um, I, I left him with that. But um, as Alan Dershowitz says himself, this, the, the judicial reform is not an issue of judicial reform. And I think you said as well, it's just a question of people want to go out of the street with flags and, and, and sort of have someone else to you know, sort of uh, disagree with. But there's not really an issue on the table there because, as he says in his own words in uh, one of the videos um, which I showed them, he said that you know, the, in America they had uh, much bigger changes to judicial reform. In other countries they had much bigger changes to judicial reform, which completely wiped out uh, people's rights and so forth. In Britain they got rid of the House of Lords effectively. I mean, not many years ago when I was uh, you know, a kid, they basically got rid of their vote, their veto the House of Commons. So it's like getting rid of the Senate. Just decide, decided the House of Parliament. It was too much hassle if you had a House, uh, a House of Lords. So we'll just say, fine, they can talk, but they can't actually vote. They can't make any difference uh, in, in the life of the people. Um, so big changes happen, and nobody cared. Nobody, and this is what Dershowitz says. He said, and this is what they're talking about here is minor changes. Uh, he said that would bring us in line with Canada and uh, France and most of the EU. Right. Um, so it's not, it's not like we're going to create like some sort of totalitarian state. It's just going to become like Europe. Um, <laughs> so which well, maybe some people would say is totalitarian state. Nah. But, uh, but in any case, I mean, so, 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 so the, the best, the best uh, so discussion of this was um, a Facebook post that I'm sure you saw that somebody sent. <clears throat> the guy said you know, he, he wanted to go to the... Uh, the pro-reform, uh, the pro-reform march in Jerusalem. So he asked his neighbour, he said, "Can I borrow your flag?" And his neighbour said, said, "Sure, you can." He said, "But you must give back to me immediately afterwards. I'm off to Tel Aviv tomorrow to go to the anti-reform." So, uh, so this this absolutely sums up uh, the situation that you know here we are marching with the same flag, you know, for things that nobody really understands what they're talking about, except for probably Alan Dershowitz. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, that's where we are. So you know, so in the meantime. We've got big issues on our hands. Iran building a nuclear weapon, which it wants to wipe us out with. Um, and nobody's really focusing on that because they're focusing on whether or not, you know, you have a committee of 11 or 7 or 9 or 12 and in, on the selection committee of the Supreme Court. And who actually cares? Well, no, no, okay, fine. Right, whatever, but, uh, you don't think so? I mean, it's a no, serious no, look, matter. I, I'll tell you what the solution is for the reform. It's very straightforward. It's, it's you know, their right and their right. Yeah. So uh, Alan Dershowitz says, he says, if you want democracy then the government should choose the Supreme Court judges. He says because that means the majority are choosing the Supreme Court judges. And obviously, you know, it comes up randomly during whenever uh, a, a judge comes up to retirement, then whoever happens to be, you know, s- sort of holding the ball at that time is the right. one who gets the prize. Right. Uh, that's democracy, he says. Right. But at the same time, you need minority protection rights. So he says, says Alan Dershowitz, he says you need a very good bill of human rights which protects people from, you know, somebody appointed, a government that comes along, and a right-wing government perhaps that appoints all the Supreme Court judges. Or a left-wing government. A left-wing government, whatever. Yeah, and protects sure. the rights of the Haredim or protects the right. rights of the Arabs. And, and that's obvious. So actually, the left-wing here could produce a very good human rights bill. The right-wing could produce a very good d- democracy. And together, yeah. they could produce a very good solution to this. So, um, yeah. you know, if they wanted to. But, you know... They're, it's, so, they're it's so interesting how, I mean, you come from a country with, obviously, that... The concept of common law came from you, your con- the country of your birth. But, but by the way, the concept of common law came from the Jews. It was adopted by England, by Cromwell in the 1600s. Um, and he learned it from uh, the, his advisors who were philosophers who had studied the first translation of the Talmud mm-hmm. into Latin and English. There's no doubt that 
the West, the, the Judeo-Christian uh, values is, is one of the pillars of, of Western, modern Western civilization, mm-hmm. so for sure. Um, which is why it's, it's interesting how Israel as a Jewish and democratic state does work. Yeah. Um, but uh, what I want to say is that, you know, this whole judicial reform thing is a been portrayed at least to the broader public as right wing trying to have a sort of theocratic takeover of what is a secular state. And yet here you are, a religious man, albeit from, again, from a Western nation, but still speaking in strictly secular terms. Right. And, and in fact, you it sounds like you deeply want to uphold the, the those you know the, those democratic institutions right a a separation of powers and completely I mean in human terms rights of, in terms of human rights I mean I tell you what my tweak was to it yeah. which, uh, you know because they said to me uh, the the left wing said to me that the, the right wing will never agree to a bill of human rights uh, because it protects terrorism and and mm. the big big complaint from the right against the Supreme Court is that when they wanted to knock down a house they wanted to expel people from the country um, then they always have this human rights issue that um, uh, comes up for the rights of the terrorists and the terrorist families and so yeah. forth. So I said, okay, I would have one tweet. I'd say human rights only apply to humans. And if we carve out uh, non-humans who are terrorists, and I, I can say that because of my current situation, um, I said then we can actually have a, a very suitable solution that works for everybody. Okay, so and, yeah, I'm going to seize on that because yeah. that's – so I sort of lied to you. I said you know, I didn't have an agenda. I, I, I do have an agenda, which is – it's just I like to talk to people because people are people, you know, and I like I like getting a sense of who the person is on a human level. Now, forget the, all the identities and stuff. I just mm. and you just made a distinction between there's humanity and then there's the evil fuckers who do the things that they did, for example, to your family. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, we have a tendency to demonize our enemies. Right. And no doubt I, I can't I, I, I still can't understand how I could find myself in a situation where I, I wake up in the morning with the intention of killing a random stranger just because they happen to come from a different background right assuming of course I'm not at war right mm-hmm. but literally a random civilian on the street mm-hmm. in the road and saying today's your day to die mm-hmm. I, I don't know what state of mind I'd have to be in to get in there but it must be a it is it, it is a distinctly human enterprise, right? The, uh, terrorism, let's say, but just in general, killing an, an innocent person. Um, and uh, so I, I would call it a non-human, inhuman enterprise. Certainly, but the the, the perpetrators are still human, and I, like uh, there must be. Th- there's the argument that says that, you know, the the ideology of radical Islam and jihad is what is coloring these people, and. Um, and so if you have these terrible ideas in your mind, then it's rather obvious that... I, 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 I don't fully agree. I mean, I think that it's interesting. You look at um, the Shoah, the, the Holocaust, as, yeah. a, as a model for this, and I think this is very interesting. Um, and, uh, and people point out to me that in the Holocaust, a third of the Jewish people were destroyed. In my family, 44% were destroyed. So okay. I had a worse Holocaust experience than average. Um, so um, if you look at the Holocaust, I mean, let's say, how many SS officers do you think there were who actually were prepared to kill other SS officers 
in order to get them to kill Jews. And I, I would uh, imagine, most people would estimate that to be maybe 10,000 or something, which mm -hmm. is a small number. And then um, you say, well, underneath them, there might be another 100,000 SS officers who would kill Jews, but they were being told by the ones above to kill Jews, and they were worried about them and their families being killed by these 10,000, so there's 100,000. Then there was a million uh, soldiers, let's say, or more, you know, who were out there collecting Jews up and doing uh, big ancillaries to murder, um, who, you know, were threatened by their, you know, the, the, the 100,000, that the 10,000 would come and kill them. You know, so there's like this pyramid of fear. Mm -hmm. and, um, and actually the number you'd have to get rid of in order to sort of, you know, have peace would have been the 10,000, because the if, if you didn't have those 10,000 sort of psychopaths, um, then probably 30, 40 million Germans could have been free of all this uh, from the beginning, and the, obviously the Jews. Um, and it's interesting because my father always used to say to me that uh, he wouldn't buy a German car or a German yeah. uh, uh, whatever um, as we were growing up. And he said, I blame the Germans because um, they, um, you know, they should have saved the Jews and whatever. And, that, and then he got there about 70, 10 years ago, and he said to me, so you know what he said, if I was a Jewish family living in Berlin and I was in s secretly surviving through the war and another family, Jewish family, came along who I didn't know and knocked to my door and said, you know, can we hide here? And I knew that if they did, there was a great chance that they would be discovered, I would be discovered, that my family would be killed and my kids and my parents yeah. and my brothers. And my he said, I don't know if I would have taken them in. Right. I might have just said to them, I'm sorry, I can't take the risk. Right. And that was the first time I heard him say that, and I realized that that's probably true. We, we, you know, we as Jews were accused, um, the um, uh, Germans, of being accomplices and so forth. Right. But the truth is, if you've got those 10,000 people at the top, right. then how much choice you know, do, do you have as a society? So I think that's the situation with uh, our friends here in, uh, in the Palestinian territories, that there's a group of them at the top. It's hard to quantify how many, although some of my friends have quantified for me how many. Uh, let's say one to two, three percent, um, who really will kill, you know, their mother in order to uh, to get what they want, um, and then the rest of them are l living scared. And so when they were dancing in the street at the Three Sweets because of uh, the murder of my wife and kids, yeah, and people said, look, you know, this is the majority of Arabs and so forth. Uh, what they didn't show you on CNN was that there was that one one of the Hamas guys, the five thousand, ten thousand, whatever it is, uh, standing in the corner observing everybody to see who was dancing and who was throwing sweets. And you know those who weren't participating in the way they were meant to be participating right. would would have had severe punishments. So then you ask yourself, you know, if I was there, maybe I would have been dancing and throwing sweets as well. So you know, so it's it's hard to judge. W would you agree with the following summary of what you said, which is so? In every society, there exists a very small percentage of psychopaths mm -hmm. who would just cause mayhem just for the sake of it, mm -hmm. and it matters. It matters culturally speaking. It matters if your culture can clamp down successfully or not, or even encourage, as, as the story you just said, encourage this kind of behavior. Mm -hmm. um, and the results are such that, I mean, terrorism is just in general as a as a as a strategy, as a tactic, is just a terrible, terrible thing. That, forget you, Arab doesn't really matter. I mean, the context is irrelevant. Terrorism is a terrible thing mm -hmm. to kill an, an innocent civilian. And if your culture celebrates that, you allow psychopaths to, to thrive. Right, right. But it's, I, I throw the media into this as well, you see, because terror is actually very limited in this country. And, and this is where, in a CNN, when I was interviewed by Christine McFarlane, and she said to me, uh, Rabbi, this was one of the worst years for terrorism in Israel, wasn't it? And I said, well, actually, Christine, um, Christina, 
Um, it was actually one of the least severe years of, uh, you know, 90 people were killed in three months, a run rate of less than 80 in the year, which is, you know, for a population of 10 million people is less than number of uh, people who stabbed probably in a few months in the streets of London or on the, un on the metro in New York, um, the subway in New York. So, uh, you know, unfortunately I said to her, statistics didn't work for me, and for me it was the worst year for terror. But, yeah. but when you have uh, news organizations like CNN, um, basically trying to, uh, the anti-truth, uh, which is trying to pretend that actually things are really, really bad. Um, this supports terrorism because, you know, th they create terror. What is terror? Terror is really fear. And, and if people actually put it into its box and said it's actually a very small number of people, less, much less than the number of people that get killed in, in car crashes in this country get killed by terror, um, and your chances, you know, you should be more careful when you get in your car than you should be about being worried about terrorists killing you. Um, if that was that truth was pr provided, people wouldn't be scared of terror, and, and we weren't scared of terror. We went up, and you know, we drove through uh, the Palestinian territories all the time in Area C, um, you know, which is whatever Jewish territory, whatever you want to call it. We uh, all the time. I've, I've driven into Arab villages, I guess area B and A. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, so I have I no worry about the terror because the statistic chance of being killed by terrorists is so small. But when you have organizations like CNN that magnify this, pretend, and constantly lie and give you the anti-truth, telling you that this is a major issue, um, then you're in the mindset of uh, actually empowering the terrorists because now they know that one a terror attack has the impact of, like, they've killed a 1,000 people. They've killed one person. They've killed, like, a 1,000 people because everyone in the world has seen it and said, oh, how terrible it is there's a terror attack in Israel. Do you, I mean, as, as now someone whose family has been severely impacted by terrorism, severely impacted wiped out yeah sorry for that um do you what what do you think going forward about um i, I mean it, it does sound like as someone who okay so the probability that anyone's going to get killed by terrorism in this country is very low mm -hmm. all things considered yeah. and yet the reality that is presented to us by these large organizations is is completely opposite, right? right? When people think of Israel-Palestine, they think exactly of this, right? right? And but but it happened to you, right? And yet you still insist on saying let's 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 not mislead people and say that this happens all the time. No, let's let's not mislead people. Let's understand that you know, since two thousand, two thousand Muslims have been killed. Um, in Israel, I, mean yeah. I think in, in the Palestinian territories and in Israel, uh, right. and the whole of Israel, um, and 5% of those were by Jews, where 5% were part of right, the right, so-called right. conflict. 95% were by other Muslims, other Arabs. Right. So, and, and, and then if you look at what's happening in Syria, where a million Arabs were killed in the last 10 years, or you look in Iran, where the society is putting people in jail and, and uh, giving no, no rights to women, uh, no, you know, no rights to gays and whatever, uh, and you look at what's happening in other countries around us where thousands of people, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people are being killed yeah. uh, or, or, or basically treated as slaves. Um, you see that what the reality of the situation is very different. And you know, people don't think, they think about the conflict, the Palestinian-Israel conflict, which is the smallest conflict in the Middle East. The biggest conflict is between these uh, terror states and their own citizens. Um, and nobody cares because this false rhetoric on CNN and other uh, TV channels uh, which gives you this false impression, um, has made you think that Israel's a problem. And so if you go to a, uh, a university campus in America, Europe, or Britain, um, 
you could, you, if you were to wrap yourself in an Israeli flag, you would get flogged by <laughs> the students. But if you wrap yourself in a Palestinian flag, somehow you know, uh, you're, you're this great, or Iranian, whatever, you'd be perfectly fine to talk about. The, you know, they stick around on the Human Rights Council of the United, United Nations, and nobody turns a, a cheek, you know, even though, yeah. Um, so, so if, if people actually understood the reality and they, were, they would march down the street instead of against Israel, they'd march against Iran, Syria, Palestinian so Authority, and Gaza, that would be a much more fruitful thing to do because actually those are societies that need to be changed, not, so, not Israel. So, I, I, look, I've never, spoke, I've never spoken to someone, a victim of terrorism before. No, right. Right, <laughs> yeah. As you said, the, the, the chances are very low. Um, but... You know, th again, the way it's presented is is a caricature, I think. And yeah. um, I I'm actually really curious about what the experience is like. Um, so, even before the day itself, I mean, how how did you and Lucy meet? Um, I was at Cambridge. She was at Oxford. Um, I'll give you her story because it's... Uh, <laughs> okay. She was in charge of, I'd left the university at this point, and a friend of mine had moved from Cambridge to Oxford to do a PhD in maths. And another friend was doing a PhD in maths in Cambridge, and um, it was Shavuot. And Lucy was the head of the Jewish Society in Oxford, and she, and, um, and she was organizing all night studying, thick and layer studying, uh, on Shavuot night. Okay. And so my friend Dov invited me and Yoav to stay with him, and we turned up. Now, what happened behind the scenes was that Lucy had invited a rabbi from Oxford to speak every session for six-hour sessions during the night, and then and everyone prays the morning prayers together, chakra together at six in the morning. That's what you do. Yeah. Um, and then two hours before uh, the, the festival came in, he'd called her from, a car, from the car in London, going down to London saying, I'm not going to be in Oxford, actually. I got a better offer, basically. Uh, <laughs> so you're on your own. So she, think there was, she, she thought to herself, my goodness, what am I going to do? I've got all these people coming, 50 people coming. Um, I've got to organize something. So she called up all her friends and said, please, would you prepare an hour session for, of learning? Yeah. Um, and they weren't that, that sort of advanced Jewishly, so they didn't really have much to talk about. So each session we turned up was 20 minutes of content. And then she was worried there was going to be like this 40-minute gap, and everyone would go home, and that would be it, and, and the whole thing would fall apart. Um, turned out that, um, as you see, I like talking. So um, came to the end of the 20 minutes, I'd ask a question, and then everyone would discuss it. And then they'd ask another question. And then, so I, she remembered that I was the one who kept it going to the end of the hour slot each time for six hours. And then we, would, uh, yeah, we, then we were all able to... to uh, dove in, dove so she's, she's, she spotted you? She spotted, she spotted me. That's, this is her story. Right. right. So and did, you, did, you, and did you remember her at all throughout this whole process or when was the first moment so, you so so th so the next day let's put it this way the next day uh dov invited her to uh, his room mm -hmm. and the four of us played bridge together and i was play i played partnered her and he partnered uh Yav. so two phd maths against two of us she was studying japanese i was working in finance at the time <coughs> in consulting actually at the time mm -hmm. and um so um we won and and lucy explained that she said that i always overbid and she underbid Okay. And so together we came up with the right, the right sort of uh, bid. <laughs> okay. And um, so anyway, after that weekend, I went back down um, to my grandparents, where I used to visit once a week. Um, and I said to my grandmother, I met the girl I'm going to marry. Whoa. And this was two, a year before we started going out and two years before we got married. But wow. So she, because she had to spend a, a year in Japan uh, after, immediately after that. So I had like a literally... It was you knew? I knew immediately. And she, I think she knew. 
Um, wow. Yeah. So we communicate. I'm, I'm also a bit of a romantic, so it's always yeah. heartening to see. Yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah. and, and, and I guess, you know, I've said to people that we spent a year, a lifetime and a half together after that because we did so much more than most couples probably do in their lifetime together. We, uh, we spent a year traveling around the world after we were married. No way. Yeah. So that was like an intense time. Where did you go? Uh, we spent three months going through uh, Asia, six months living in uh, Australia, working as casual work in Australia, and three months traveling back through South America, uh, all through third world countries, except for Australia and New Zealand in the middle. Right. Uh, so on a very low budget, we're backpacking. Incredible. Uh, yeah. And then... How um, did you guys manage to stay together? I, if I did that with my wife, yeah, it would tear so, it to so the pieces. So I've said to my kids, and they've all agreed that they'd like to do this, that once they get married, yeah. they go off for a year. I mean, they may work for a bit or something, but then they go off for a year. Right. I will help them finance it, because uh, I think it's more difficult now than it probably was then. Right. Uh, also, we were a bit older than uh, the kids, police couple would be when they get married. But it's the best experience, because you, you grow together, you see each other in, in difficult times, hungry, tired, you know, you <laughs> yeah. catch a bug here, catch a bug there, you get right. diarrhea, um, and you're, you're, you're sort of, you know, in, in, in you know, traveling on buses and trains across China and India and Laos and Thailand and wow. Indonesia and wow. uh, Bali and whatever, um, not to mention Peru and Ecuador and Bolivia and... Uh, Guatemala and Mexico, Mexico, and wow. um, getting arrested at the border of Mexico and be, being told that you're uh, going to have to tell me the story, man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, many stories, but we were, uh, I was arrested at the border of Mexico, so I didn't have the right stamp in my passport. Bear in mind that we entered the, from America, so it was like a thousand, two thousand miles away or something. So I, I looked at him, I said, $25? He said, 30 I said, okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, you know, so we had to deal with all, all different types of challenges. Um, and, uh, <coughs> so I mean, she saw you bribe someone. Yeah, we went to uh, Laos. <laughs> so we were, we were slightly more educated than the average backpacker. Mm. And at the time, Laos had just opened for t tourism. And in order to get into Laos, you had to have a visa from uh, Beijing. Right, okay. which is about two or 3,000 miles away, I think, okay. from the, the southern border with, with Laos. And they didn't have a place you could buy. There was no, there was no way you could buy a, a visa if you actually got So most of the backpackers got to Laos border and found they couldn't get in. But we planned ahead, so we actually had the, the visas, and we turned up with the right. So it was about 10 people who got across the border that day. We're on a, a, a literally a little sort of pickup truck that took us on a bump, bumpy road across the border into uh, a northern town in Laos where basic Muang Sing, I think it was called, where people only went apparently to smoke opium, but we didn't. We didn't had no idea about this. <coughs> I chatting to an English guy on this uh, on this uh, pickup truck. I said to him, "What do you do for a living?" He said, "I'm a drug dealer," <laughs> and that was that was like normal. That was, uh, wow. yeah, that, that was like, and, and when we got to this place, uh, I remember we paid fifty cents a night to sleep in this place. It was yeah. just open to tourism. They didn't know how to charge, and we paid fifty cents a night. We had like a old suite, although Lucy reminded me it was literally a uh, a hose pipe that was uh, coming out the ceiling. Right. Uh, but it was fine. It was hot and it was tropical. And it was lovely. And we stayed there for a week or something. And the only thing to do there was um, to visit opium farms and smoke opium, which we weren't interested in. So we hired some bicycles, which came with a map to the local opium farm. And as we're walking down the street, yeah. uh, or we're cycling down the street, we bump into a couple of farmers, basically they're looking, you know, into very rural. And we said, can we see your village? Like, it's a picture of my heart. Okay, so, so they took us off the side street, down to over, a couple, uh, over a couple of, of streams, whatever, and literally half an hour mm -hmm, walk mm -hmm. with our bicycles in our hands. And they took us to a wooden hut, and the women were wearing these golden uh, headdresses, and they had their 
uh, you know, were not covered in, in places that nobody covered. They had straw dresses. Okay. And it was a genuine, it was a genuine uh, Laos experience. And the kids had never seen a bicycle before. They offered to kill a, a chicken for us, uh, which oh. we refused, and wow. give us like boiled rice. Wow. And this was this. We have pictures of it from. You know, this is from uh, twenty-two years ago. Wow. Twenty-three years ago, and it was an amazing experience. And it was one of those experiences that you know you only have when you're backpacking. That's right. An agenda across to across see the world. that there's yeah. many, many, many people who live yeah. very very differently, dissimilar lives. But, but you know what we also found was there was a lot of happiness in in these places. They were poor as they had nothing at all. Yeah, and the kids were laughing and singing and dancing. And they, and the only thing they wanted to do was play with the bicycle. They'd never seen a bicycle before. Incredible. And they got so much joy out of it. And then you realize from that that there's so much more to life than what we sort of see as Westerners. And right. We came back. I worked four years more as a, as a private equity investor um, until I basically earned enough money that I said, okay, enough is enough. And then I quit once I was given my bonus uh, that year. Um, although I left a lot of money on the table, right. golden handcuffs, whatever. Yeah. And I became a rabbi. That was it. When I came to Israel, I became a rabbi. And did you get, wait, where did you get married? We got married in London. In London, okay. Um, we okay. lived in London for the first um, uh, seven years. Um, and then... Um, I, th at this point, I quit my job, and uh, um, I'd already been working three years before that, so I'd worked for about ten years in finance and and consulting. And um, wait, and and your and, and when did you have your first child? Was that in London as well? We had a first child, Meyer, after five years. So we came back from traveling, and, and I was w in working in this high-pressure job in private equity and investment. And in fact, um, the um, I was in the middle of a buyout. Uh, when um, Maya was born, uh, and because they always happen over Christmas New Year, and Maya was born the 30th of December. What year was this? 2002. Okay. And if you look up uh, the Financial Times, uh, Google Financial Times of 2003, January 2003, you'll find there's a Maya Holdings, M-A-I-A Holdings company, which we named the company that bought the company that we were buying at the time, and was in the Financial Times, and that was the official buyout vehicle. That was after your daughter? Because uh, after my daughter, because uh, my boss, Nick, said, you know, what, what do we call this company? He said, well, you just called your daughter Maya. How about we call it Maya Holdings? Holy um, shit. And then, of course, well, you, when you buy a company, you change the name back to the original name, but you have to have a, 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 a different company name to buy the first company. Right, Otherwise, right, you right, have right. one company buying the same company, whatever. Um, so... Um, I Where guess were you when she was born? So I, th I think I'm pretty sure I was I was there. No, I was there. I remember, remember being you were there. in the delivery. I room. was there, but I wasn't there much afterwards for the week or two afterwards. And then yeah. we completed the deal, and I took uh, probably some time off. But I think I was probably one of these city people who didn't take that much time off actually, and that's why Lucy insisted uh, also that we want we go to Israel, and she was happy that we went to Israel, and uh, that yeah. was a fantastic. So anyway, but we spent a lot of time together. We spent the year together, uh, not so much as I say. Well, I was working hard in the city. But once I was uh, studying to be a rabbi for four years, we had tons of times together. Um, and then when I was a rabbi for six years, and she was uh, uh, she was really the Rebbitson, she was the one who did everything. I was her her sidekick, um, <laughs> and we we spent a lot of time together at home, that's yeah. as you do as rabbis. Uh, and then we came back here, and I had different jobs, usually working from home, a couple of days out. She was a teacher, working you know afternoons. But so we had a huge amount of time together. For many, many years. For That's why you years. say a year. And, uh, and so we had a lifetime and a half of time together. And she insisted, I mean, uh, well, during Corona, we had, of course, a couple of years together. Um, and after Corona, we took Thursdays off to uh, to, to just be together and to, to, to hike uh, in the Dead Sea or to swim in the Mediterranean. What was, um, 
was your first memory of Maya? I mean, do you remember that being in the delivery room? I, w I remember being in the delivery room. I took a picture of her uh, literally when she was on the weighing scales. And the funny story was that when Karen was born, I took a picture of her as well on the, uh, on the delivery scale, on the weighing scales. And s by some mistake, um, the picture of Maya got into Karen's passport. So they had exactly the same picture <laughs> in both their passports for the first five years of their life. Now, they got we got away with it and nobody noticed because I mean, it's just ridiculous having a picture of a baby anyway, as you can imagine, yeah, once they're yeah. three or four years old. Right. Um, but um, I thought, you know, I insisted having this picture in there. And when we made Aliyah in 2004, or, uh, or we, came, we came over, let's say, in 2004 yeah. to study here, um, it was the woman at the LL desk uh, just before we get off the flight to take your passports, she opened one passport, then she opened the next passport, then she, so I could see her <laughs> look at it, then she showed it to her, to her supervisor, and the supervisor said, oh, <laughs> <laughs> she put it back, and, and that was the only time anyone noticed. So, Incredible. Yeah. What, and so what were, I mean, give me a sense of what your wife, Lucy, and so Maya and your other daughter was Rhea. Rhea. Yeah. Right, what were they like? Um, so I, I'd have to do this out loud crying, but Lucy was a very special person who, um, you know, people have said was just very grateful for uh, everything. I mean, a lot of people just said, you know, at, at the shiver, a friend said, she always thanked them for every small thing they did for her. She, she never took anything for granted. Um, she also was somebody who changed herself. You know, she, she worked on herself. She came from a family that um, the parents were split up basically when she was 12. She had two uh, twin uh, sisters who were three years old. And she was seen pushing them on the street herself uh, at the age of 12, th uh, three-year-old sisters in a double pr uh, bu buggy. Mm -hmm. And um, she would prepare breakfast for them, lunch and dinner for them, take them to school. She, from the age of 12, she was the mother, basically. Wow. And um, her father got remarried. That created its own problems. So she effectively... Uh, had to reinvent herself. She didn't have a model of parenting, but she knew she wanted. But but she parented her, her sisters, so she sort of developed her own techniques at the age of twelve. Yeah, and I guess that's one of the things that attracted me to her was you know that I liked the fact that she was this motherly figure. And did you, uh, did you in that night when you were playing bridge? Did you? I like when I look back at the dating period I had with my wife. There are these moments that stand out. Like, for example, we had um, early when we were dating together at her apartment, we hosted a potluck Shabbat dinner. And it's, you know, it's not a big deal, right? You, but it was like 20 people and we organized most of it. And she was so, um, she was just an incredible host. So, 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 so what you say is just absolutely uh, resonates. Um, my parents went away um, before we were married. I th before we were engaged, maybe we were engaged. I'm not sure if we were engaged or, we were, or before we were engaged. Yeah. Uh, it was New Year's Eve, and um, I w always liked to have a turkey. Uh, we could, and you couldn't have a turkey. Kosher turkey is only available at Christmas time. Okay. In England, because the turkey market is big, and and there's big demand from Jews, by the way. So we, I wouldn't have a turkey on Christmas because that's a little bit too religious, but. New Year's Eve, everybody's celebrating, having a drink, and I thought, you know, so I thought, let's have a turkey and invite twenty friends. Okay. And uh, Lucy cooked uh, at, at my parents' house, and uh, again, I was it, it was exactly the same story. I was totally impressed by the fact that she knew exactly what to do, right? And she was this great hostess, and I saw this vision of us having like this great sort of social life and right. family, and 
and but uh, you noticed it at the moment i didn't i didn't it didn't huh. i didn't it didn't i didn't compute it it was just it was yeah. just a thing i was like i like this you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know like an, another time when again early on when we were dating she hosted some friends and she made homemade sushi and i thought right. oh my gosh you know yeah. looking back like now i see how adventurous she is with her cooking well, so, like, so she because lucy went to japan yeah sushi was her thing so <laughs> she, she came back with a rice cooker which we had actually for about 20 years yeah and literally five years ago we replaced it with something uh, not as good but it just broke down and um you know she was great with sushi and uh, i remember um yeah we even visited i visited japan once with her and uh um, went to the Tokyo fish market and they had a huge, at the time, they had a huge tuna, which I don't think exists today because they, they, you know, they've overfished. But yeah. at the time, it, took, it was on a, t a huge table, the size of a car, a uh, small car. Right. And they were hacking pieces off and we bought some of this tuna and we took it back home and she made some rice and we had this, uh, this uh, sushi, this uh, sashimi, and it was just beautiful. It was like, you know, and if, if you're in Japan, by the way, there are different cuts to the tuna. There's okay. like the so there's like the sirloin, there's the entrecot, there's the yeah, you know, yeah. And you buy the most expensive bit from the marketplace, uh, and you have it. It's absolutely divine. Really? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, so. I, and how was she as a, as a mother? I mean, amazing mother. So funnily enough, I was talking about this with uh, somebody today. Um, she and I both agreed that the purpose of parenting was to enable your kids not to control them but to enable them yes so we give them the tools that enable them to do whatever they need to do um now i i did this by just basically you know sort of what's sitting back and watching lucy doing it but <laughs> I, I enabled lucy to enable the kids so she she resented that a bit because she felt that i had all the fun and she had all the hard work but she was true but um that's generally no nah. My my sons adore me, but maybe that's a son dad thing. I don't know. Right. But uh, I, th I think if you had daughters, they'd adore you as well. So and, <laughs> and your wife would have to work even harder with them because she'd have the resentment of teenage girls at some point. Yeah. But you know, it's it's moms. They um they always think that they're they they have this, this thankless job. You know that mm. they do everything. I mean, yeah. they, they they do everything. Mm -hmm. Um, and it can be thankless, right? Mm. But. Pff, mothers are just they're incredible like the thank you would never be enough i right. think you know yeah, absolutely um, so so she brought up these kids to be completely independent and enabled and that is why maya and rena were also amazing people in their own right because they weren't you know kids who stayed at home expecting their mother to do everything they yeah. were completely independent uh rena was the youngest girl daughter so she was the most independent um and when did you know that she was going to be an independent child. Um, they you know they well, what happened was we had them very close together. We had five kids within six years. Wow. So what we realized was um, we couldn't actually parent them. Um, they'd have to parent themselves <laughs> or each other. So so we created ways that they brought each other up, and that was you know there was uh, she was a management consultant, Lucy, her first her first job, and I was a management consultant. So we sort of had a way of. Of incentivizing, I don't know, incentivizing them, but, but actually just enabling them and sort of uh, incredible. And uh, and we had this wonderful Baruch Hashem, wonderful atmosphere in the home, where they all loved each other and they all you know got on with each other, and uh, it wasn't obvious that would be the case. It's it's um, <laughs> it's that that's you know, uh, parenting is tough. Parenting is tough. It's I'm you giving a lot of time because I've got to... I've got tell to me how much time you got left. 15, 20 minutes. But okay. Um, the, uh, no, the... the uh, no, I, I just want to say, I mean, when uh, if your kids are... are you know, that for me, when I see my kids, 
I have three sons, uh, seven, five, and almost two, and um, they're buds. Like they're they're yeah. friends. They're it's really the and it's pleasure just, that you get as parents. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. So, you know, scream at me all you want, as so long as you guys are good so, together. So, so this is in what they say about God, right? That uh, you know, God looks at us as children, and He just wants us to get on with each other. There's nothing that gives God greater pleasure yeah. than seeing us getting on with each other, but also with the other people in the world, right? With the Muslims and with the Christians, whatever. <laughs> That's the thing that gives God. Uh, what they call in Hebrew nachat ruach, which is like great pleasure, and uh, and I think it's something which, as mankind, we haven't really given God much pleasure yet. But um, I say well, there are possibilities for that. Uh, I want to talk about Maya. Um, Maya was very independent. She I just told you about one thing that she did, which is a small thing, but just gives you a flavor of who she was. In her school, she was volunteering as a national service in Yerucham, which, as you know, is a, a less affluent uh, town yeah. in the south of Israel. And uh, so she was uh, helping out in a school as a 20-year-old girl, helping uh, year nine girls um, acclimatize to the new school because they were first year in high school. And um, she did many different sort of activities, but she invented something which she called in Hebrew, nishnosh parsh, which means uh, snack and parsha. Okay. Uh, we'd have like in English, we'd call it sort of nosh and drosh or something, and whatever. You have like some name. Yeah. So she created this name. And on Thursday break time, when they had like a 20-minute break, she would get girls to, you know, if they wanted to come, she would go and buy, I think with her own money actually, snacks, chocolate bars or, or wafers. And she would prepare a one, you know, a sort of five-minute uh, uh, discussion about the Torah portion of the, of the week. I mean, So, so she, she, would, um, she would prepare a uh, five-minute uh, discussion on the Torah portion of the week. And, uh, and then the girls would be there. The 20 girls would suddenly turn up out of you know, 100 in a year or whatever. And, and it would be a very nice atmosphere. And it would be voluntary. And it would just be fun. And it would be learning. And it would be sociable. And it was an opportunity for her to connect with the girls but yeah. then to connect with each other. That was that. She did that every week. She loved it. And she'd come back on Shabbat occasionally. And she'd tell us what she taught them, and it was always a nice idea and something inspiring. So when all this happened, uh, the school said, well, this is an amazing idea. They don't do it anywhere else, apparently, in Israel. So they said, well, every school should be doing it. So they have done a project, and now there are 560 schools in Israel that are doing Nishnosh Parsh, uh, where they, this school is sending out, you know, because not everybody has time to prepare something. The girls in, 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 in Yerucham are preparing the... Whoa. The, the page of learning um, and um, then they've got WhatsApp uh, groups so the, there's a girl contacts in each year nine across the country and they're setting up these little groups they're buying the snacks I think themselves and if they have any money or the parents are chipping in wow and uh, they're learning something together and it's all in memory of Maya and I said to them if they want to you know, give me some more information about it maybe I can talk about it to some Americans, uh, rabbis, who could start this initiative in America. So wow. Wow. And, and wow. these are these are things that happened. You came earlier. You saw that uh, we, I was writing a letter in, this, in, this, in a Torah scroll. Uh, well, I've got a group here that want to basically take this Torah scroll around the whole of Israel and get every every child, man, woman, and child mm -hmm. in Israel to write a letter in the Torah scroll, um, and in America and across the world. They want to actually get 50, 50 scrolls would have enough letters, fifteen million letters, which would enable every Jew in the world write a letter in, in a Torah scroll. And, the uh, idea being like to spark their curiosity in the to tradition. Spark the, to educate, spark their curiosity, okay. and create a feeling of unity and uh, mm. 
between the Jewish people. So these, so I could tell you a hundred projects like this that are going on at the moment around the world, which are, yeah. are just incredible. And then I'm talking about uh, Rina. So Rina um, was the girl who in her class, and, and every year this is what happened, uh, the teachers would tell us that um, if there was a girl at the back of the class had no friends, Rina was there with her arm around her. If um, there was a girl who wasn't included in the ball game, Rina would start a new ball game. And wow. her friends recently made, literally yesterday, made a video uh, professionally produced with uh, in, a, in a studio with uh, them singing and uh, I think, um, and uh, pictures of, of Rina um, and, and, you know, and, and, and a story about uh, her life, uh, which was, you know, having tears for four minutes. Um, but every picture she was with a different group of girls. And that's who she was. Um, so what was that day like? Um, to be honest, just shock. I mean, uh, and, and uh, my response to shock, um, is adre adrenaline <coughs> and I was just like completely uh, awake and completely sort of, you know, we have to, when, when we found out that it was their car, we had to drive as quick as we could to this, to that spot. Did you have any hope? Uh, we had hope. And when we got there, we said, which car is it? They said it was a, a Kia, and ours was a Micra. So we thought, oh, my goodness, maybe, maybe we've, it's not our car. Yeah, <sighs> we don't, that's, uh, whatever. So, uh, and then when we discovered it was them, uh, for sure, because they handed me Maya's ID card. Uh, then I drove straight down to Jerusalem because we knew that Lucy was in hospital having an operation. And then you know, family and friends started turning up, and Karen, who had been uh, not with us at the time, she was in Jerusalem, she was there. And 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 I, I don't think I cried particularly. I was just was very you know uh, uh, mindful uh, that we had to do the things we had to do. Um, and now it's hitting me much more. Now I'm crying much more, which I think is healthy. And the kids are crying, you know, on because you thought you needed to keep it together for your family. I, th I think it's so unreal. You know, if if God forbid you, somebody has a family member who's in hospital with cancer for ten years, and you're sitting by the bedside, and this happens. I think, you know, then you cry immediately and uh, you know, all the feelings happen. If, you have, if it's got to be a par an elderly parent who dies, so you cry and you, you feel the feelings immediately. I think when something like this happens, it's just so unreal. It, it's, uh, it, it, they disappeared, you didn't see them. Um, and you don't see them the next day, you don't see them the next day. And then at some point, you realize you're not going to see them ever again. And you were, and I mean, I look at my kids and I think, I can't wait to be a grandfather to your kids, right? Right. Um, Right, so, so I'll, t I'll t talk to you about that. So I was in the car, and nothing happens by chance in my life. Everything happens <laughs> for a reason. So um, I'm listening to Michal Horowitz, who's uh, an educator on whyyoutorah.com. Okay. And she'd be horrified probably if she knew that a man was listening to her shirim, but they're, um, they're publicly available. So I, 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 she's one of the people I just happen to connect with what she says. Uh, and I'm imagining she's talking to a group of like 50-year-old, 60-, 70-year-old women in her community. And she's giving a, uh, a class about I think Hillel says, if I'm not for myself, who am I? Okay. And she explains this part. She says, if I, everybody has a, a role in life that they have to play, that God gives them this role. If I don't do that role, who's going to do it? And she, that's how she explains it, which is an interesting novel, a novel way of understanding that particular yeah. Mishnah. Um, so everyone has a task. And then she said, um, and most of us in this room think that our task is to live to 120 and see our great-grandchildren. 
and you know they're all nodding. You can imagine I, it's, uh, it's a uh, audio recording, but I can imagine all. Yeah, you know, well, surely that's that's everyone's role is to lift 120, and and see your great grandchildren. And she said, but that's not the case. She says, she says some people have different tasks in life. People have you know, tasks to fulfill all different types of missions, and God gives everybody a different mission. And sometimes people you know fulfill that mission. And sometimes they don't. And sometimes people who don't live to 120 and see their great grandchildren. Sometimes the people who uh, who do, you know, live till age 15 and fulfill their mission. And uh, and, and and I thought she's speaking to me. I mean, uh, <laughs> I, I, it, w- it was not by chance that I heard that. Incredible. And I had to hear that. Um, Chief Rabbi Lau came to the house during the shiva, and he said, uh, "This must be the last idea." But he said, um, "Everybody has a book." of life, book of the history of, of mankind uh, for them. And um, said some people have 90 pages in it, and some people have 48, and some have 20, and some have 15 pages. He said, but some of those who have 90 pages have very large writing and big gaps between the, between the lines. And some of those who have 15 pages have tiny writing and small gaps between the lines. I said, stop there. I said, it's all in Hebrew. I said, stop there. He said, are you a prophet? He said, I'm not a prophet. I ran into the other back room. I brought out the book of Sapiens, which is subtitled uh, the, the, story history of the, story, the History of the Story of Mankind or something. Right, right. And I'd given it to Rena um, about six months ago, nine months ago, to read because she was in a school, Israeli school, where the English lessons were not that challenging. And I said, so instead of just sitting there doing, being bored, why don't you read this book? And we'll discuss it maybe, you know, when you finished it. And it's a high level and it's interesting. And right. she was very much into uh, all different types of ideas. Um, so uh, she said, fine. So s- anyway, six months after that, it was about three months ago, she handed it back to me and, sh- and she had some papers in there. I said, Rima, what's that? She said, well, I just made a few notes. Uh, you, maybe you want to read them. So I had it by my bed. I, I didn't have time and mindset to read it. And then about you know, a month before all this happened, I, I take the book. I, I want to make space. So I start reading the notes, and she's basically, the book is Sapiens, is all about uh, evolution, Yuval Harari, yeah. uh, the history of mankind from 15 billion years ago, and mm-hmm. five billion, whatever it is, five billion years ago, and yep. the history of mankind. And Great book. Rina has written a, a sort of load of questions about where he says something which differs to the Torah view okay. of creation. And she wants to ask me, basically, she wants, she wants to have a discussion with me, you know, if he says this, and how do we understand this? And that was her interest. So she wrote these notes, six and a half pages of very small writing, very s- closely spaced <laughs> uh, on A4. Um, and I took those papers out. I showed them to Rabbi Lau. Is this what you meant? And he said, yes. I said, well, this book is called A Brief History of the Mankind. <laughs> I, sa- I said, you're, you're a prophet. <laughs> I said, and, and Rina had tiny writing. And she used to cramp it together. It used to really annoy me. because I said, And, and it usually it's introverts who do that. And yet she had so many friends. I mean, so it was... Very unusual, but that was who she was. She she cramped so much into, and her time as well, so much into a small amount of time. She would, um, she was one staying up three till three in the morning at uh, boarding school, um, chatting to the girls who were having a hard time. Get up six o'clock the next morning to to to, to pray the morning prayers, and um, and then she'd go to bed late the next day. She'd come back on a Thursday night, so exhausted that you couldn't speak to her. And she hadn't eaten properly, so you'd give her like some food, and she'd just sit there reading Sapiens probably for about an hour or two. And then she'd go to bed, and well, no, then she'd go out on Thursday night with her friends till two or three in the morning. Then she'd sleep on Friday till about two or three in the afternoon. And by Friday night, you could have a conversation with her. But then Friday night, she'd go out with friends again till two or three in the morning. And then 
uh, Shabbat, she would sleep in until 11, 12 o'clock. Then she'd daven, join us for lunch, um, maybe have a, a conversation with her then. And then she'd be out with uh, doing her youth group. She was a, a leader in the youth group, so she'd be doing that. Wow. And then, you know, the Saturday night, uh, Saturday night after Shabbat, she'd meet up with the other heads of the youth group, and they'd do something till 2 or 3 in the morning. Then she'd go straight back the next morning to boarding school and start the whole thing again, and that was her life. So she's She was crammed. really not an introvert. <laughs> no, she wasn't an introvert. And, uh, and yet her writing and the space between writing was tiny. I mean, yeah. So... Um, she cramped a lot. So, so the, I take all these things together as a message, and you know, obviously it's very sad. But what, what Lucy and Mario and Rina achieved in their shorter lives was more than many people achieve in, in, in a longer lifespan. And, uh, and, and what's happening now around the world because of them is just incredible. I mean, the amount of Jewish learning and chesed kindness and uh, other initiatives, peace initiatives, which yeah, yeah. Um, is just incredible. So they, they're transforming the world, which is the title of my book. So. Do you do you take that on upon your shoulders? I mean, I would I would not I would I wouldn't be I wouldn't be genuine if I didn't say that. You know, becoming a father has changed me radically and has made me understand that the things I do now are it's it's it's, it's beyond me, right? right. It's um. Per there's no escaping the fact that my sons are watching how I act and right. move through the world, and so I better be uh, at my best. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I, you know, do you? I I don't know if you had the same when you became a father, but I imagine you did, because it's obvious. And um. Do you, does that ever leave you, or so is, is that what's animating you at the moment, or I is think, it something I think else? What's animating me is a number of different things. Number one, if you read my book, it's all about peace, and so therefore, when this happened, and I realized I could open people's doors, the first thing that came to mind was shalom. Mm. Uh, and I'll just finish with this idea yep. actually of shalom. Um, and I said to you, shalom is not peace. So I, I want to just give you this last idea, and then we, we'll have to close. Sure, sure. What's the difference between peace and shalom? So peace I liken to mosaic. Every piece in the mosaic is a square. It might be different colors, but they're basically the same thing, right, with slight variations. Yeah. Right? And because of that, you can fit together, uh, usually stick them in mud uh, or an uneven surface, and you see, you know, whatever, and they okay. pretty much fit together because they're, they're, they're pretty uniform. Okay. And that's peace. I said, if peace is a mosaic, then shalom is a jigsaw puzzle. A jigsaw puzzle has every piece is a completely different shape. And if, if you, like us, uh, did a 2,000-piece jigsaw puzzle during co Corona, um, you'll know that when you put it on the tablecloth, uh, if there's a little crinkle in the tablecloth, it doesn't work, right? The whole thing, you can't, you can't, it doesn't fit together. There's no way of finding a piece, and, and you never quite know. So you have to sort of iron out the tablecloth or take, you know, just have a flat surface in order to make the jigsaw puzzle in a way you don't with a mosaic. So shalom is about you know, removing the bad, removing the wrinkles, and then being able to slit very, very different shaped pieces together in a beautiful pattern. Mm. Um, and uh, peace is about sort of making everyone squ into little s identical squares. And then you can sort of put up with the wrinkles and, uh, you know, you can sort of try and pretend that the terrorists and the uh, Fatah and, uh, you know, the, the uh, evil people in the world fit together nicely with everybody else and you can sort of squash them together because you pretend that everyone's the identical square. Okay. Uh, Shalom is about removing the terrorists, uh, however that happens uh, most effectively. Uh, and removing the evil, and then taking those very odd-shaped pieces of Islam and Christianity and Judaism and Hinduism and Chinese, 
and sticking them together and, and working out a framework in which they can all live peacefully together because there isn't that wrinkle underneath. Um, so um, slightly nuanced and it goes back to what you're talking about black and white and polarization of society and CNN and you know every, everything's very sort of clear and you know, everyone takes one side the other Republican right. and Democrat right. uh, pro-reform anti-reform and it creates a gray space in the middle which is like you know yes Shalom is about creating you know a better society but sometimes it requires um, something that you know might look to some people as violence in the middle in order to achieve it so there's no contradiction between Shalom and getting rid of terror which might require you know quite quite strong uh, yeah, quite quite strong a strong approach to it. Let's put it that way. It is it is the threat of force that keeps the peace, right? Right, but that that's that's peace because you threat of force keeps everyone in the square. Yeah, but shalom actually creates a lasting situation right. where there is no terror. There is just people living comfortably together in a very comfortable way, and, and you pretty much have shalom in Europe, let's say, or America. Mm. Um, although people might you know they, they have other problems. But, uh, you know, you have how many countries, 50 countries, you know, in Europe or whatever it is. Um, and they're pretty comfortable li living there with their differences. And, you know, uh, maybe not Ukraine and Russia <laughs> at the moment. <laughs> I was going to say. Um, but, uh, you know, if you talk about Liechtenstein and uh, Luxembourg and Belgium and uh, right, Spain and right, right. France and uh, whatever, you know, they're, they're generally speaking. They're, they're doing okay. Yeah. They're, they're okay. And we, we laugh about the French. They laugh about us. But, uh, you know. That that's part of the framework of, of shalom is that you're allowed to laugh at each other, but uh, you're just not allowed to uh, terrorize each other. <laughs> um, so you know, whatever we got rid of the terrorists uh, 500 years ago in Europe, and in, in America you got rid of the terrorists from three, 300 years ago, you know, and, and and there was a process, um, and that created shalom. Um, and I think that uh, that is the objective here, and that um, maybe we'll learn a bit more about this in July. Please God. I'm looking forward to it. Okay, and, and it's been a pleasure. Likewise, speaking to you. Thank you. See you. Thank you.